The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. I invite you to open once again to the book of Hebrews as we continue through our study of this wonderful book. I want to come back and I want to focus on a particular verse uh, this time. It's verse 12 of Hebrews 2, so that will be our passage for today. Hebrews 2.12. And this is something I've touched on in the past, but something I want to again revisit uh, as we make our way through this uh, book. I don't want to pass over this really important verse that talks about our service to God, our worship service, what is going on here, things that we don't see by sight, but that we do know by faith because this is what the Scriptures teach. So our passage is Hebrews 2.12. I'm going to read verses 11 and 12 of Hebrews 2. So let's give our attention now as God speaks to us in His holy and inspired word. Hebrews 2, 11 and 12. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all of one. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. This concludes the reading of God's holy and inspired word. May God now be pleased to bless it to us. Well, we've been considering the wonder of the incarnation from this section of Hebrews. It just happens to providentially correspond to the time of year that we particularly focus in on that. And in part one, we considered how Christ's incarnation took care of our sin, how he suffered in His flesh, to pay for all our sins, and how as our representative, as the last Adam, we are being conformed into His image. He is the one who sanctifies us. In part two, we considered how He delivers us from our shame and how the incarnation particularly deals with that. That Christ is not ashamed to call us brothers, Christ is not ashamed of us because He took on our very own flesh. And so He is one of us. And then because of that incarnation, He came to bring many sons to glory. The opposite of shame. To bring us to glory. To present us before the Father joyfully. These are My children without any shame whatsoever. And that is how we are to think of ourselves. That is our identity. Not the things that have been done to us that are shameful. Not the things that we do that are shameful. But rather, our identity is who we are in Christ. Again, this comes about because of the incarnation. Today, we are going to consider how the incarnation deals with our worship service. In the here and now. The Incarnation has something to do with what we are doing even now. Now at first that connection might be hard to make. Because when we think about the Incarnation, we think about Christ in His human body. And that makes sense because that is what is meant by Incarnation. Incarnation is two words. In, Incarna, which means flesh. And what incarnation means is his enfleshment. 
That is, he put on human flesh. He became a true man in every way except for sin, without ceasing to be God. But how does the incarnation then have anything to do with our worship service in the here and now? If he is bodily absent, but bodily in heaven. Well, I want you to think about the way the saints in the Old Testament worshipped. How did God draw near to them in the Old Testament? Well, it was this finite structure. One was mobile, called the tent of meeting or the tabernacle. One was more permanent, called the temple. God met with them in a finite structure. He descended and came down to earth in a finite structure, visibly portrayed in a cloud. And that is how he met with them, and that's how the people drew near. But there was something different about it. And what was different is that they had to worship from afar. That is the type of worship in the Old Covenant. Worship from afar. You cannot come into the most holy place. In fact, a veil has to cover the most holy place so that nobody accidentally gets even a glimpse into it. What changed with the New Covenant? Well, we read in the Gospels that Christ tabernacled among us. That Christ in His incarnation became a true man. And Christ called His body the temple. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, how does that impact our worship? Because his incarnation, him being born of a woman, is God with us. So he's coming nearer, nearer to us, but more had to be done. That body had to be broken, had to be torn, as it were. And then when he offered up himself on the cross, remember what happened with the veil that covered the most holy place? It was torn in two because his body was torn. That means the way into the most holy place that nobody could enter into has now been opened. As the book of Hebrews says, we enter in through the curtain, the veil, that is his flesh. How do we enter in through his flesh? Well, it's talking about his incarnation. It's talking about his enfleshment. It's talking about what he did in his body to deal with the sin that made a separation between us and God, paying for it in full, that we may be brought to God. That we, as Hebrews says, can now enter into that most holy place. Now, where is the most holy place? Well, of course, we have access all the time to our Father through prayer. But the most holy place is when we gather together. Because the New Testament says that we as the church body collectively are the temple. And God meets with us. And God meets with us in a special way when we gather together. That we draw near to God. That our worship when we gather publicly, 
we join heaven in that worship. And that's what the book of Hebrews is saying. And that is what we see in our verse. That's what we're going to see in other verses in the book of Hebrews. That Christ, because of His incarnation, because of what He has done, has brought us into the holy place, but He meets us here in this most holy place. That He is here preaching to us. That He is here singing with us. And that's what we see in this wonderful verse that is brought about by uh, the Incarnation. We're going to go through six questions. The first is this. In our verse, who is saying this? In verse 12, where it says that I will declare your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, I will sing. And who is saying that according to Hebrews is Christ. Christ is the one who is saying this. Christ is not ashamed to call them, that is, believers, his brothers, saying. And then the writer of Hebrews quotes Psalm 22.22, which means that is Christ who is saying this. And then we see from this quote that Christ is the one who both tells, or better translated, proclaim, declare, announce, preach God's name to his brothers and sings God's praises. So our verse says that it is explicitly Christ who is doing these things. And second question, what does Christ proclaim? Well, it says here that he proclaims God's name. I will tell, I will proclaim, I will preach your name to my brothers. God's name is the revelation of who he is, his character, and his works that flow out of his character, out of who he is. What does Christ sing? Well, it says here that Christ sings God's praises. Because I will sing your praise. God's praises refers to what makes him praiseworthy, why he is so great. And this is put to song. So not only is Christ true God, but he's also true man and joins us as one of the worshipers. Now, to whom does Christ preach and sing? That's the third question. And we see it's to his brothers. It says, I will tell your name to my brothers. And Christ's brothers are believers, those who are united to him by faith. Believers or God's people are the only ones mentioned to whom Christ preaches and sings. And this is because the natural man, though he has physical ears and can understand words, doesn't spiritually understand what is being said. That is, the glory of God is not so glorious to him. The gospel, he does not believe. He does not see the light of the gospel of the glory of God in the face of Christ because Satan has blinded his mind to that. The natural man cannot understand these things. But his brothers, believers, can. And so he declares God's name to believers. He sings with them God's praises. And this makes sense when we ask the fourth question, which is, where does Christ sing? Well, it says he sings in the midst of the congregation. 
In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praises. And this is where he also preaches. So in the midst of the congregation is where Christ both preaches and sings, according to this verse. The congregation is the Hebrew word for the gathered or assembled people of God in worship. That word was used in the Old Testament as the Hebrew word kahal. It's used of when the people of God would assemble, would gather together to worship God at His tabernacle or at His temple. That is what this verse is referring to. So Christ both preaches and sings in the midst of the congregation, the assembly, the word for church. Here right now, Christ is with us. Insofar as His word is being accurately preached, He is speaking to us. He is active in the preaching. And He is with us in our spirits, causing us to sing songs that we would never truly sing to God if it wasn't for His grace and His Spirit in us. And this brings us to really the fifth question. When did Christ do this? Or better, when does Christ do this? Of course, I already answered that, that question. But I want to dive deeper into this. And we get our answer when we consider Psalm 22, the place where the saying of Christ is found. Hebrews 2.12 is quoting Psalm 22. And I want you to turn there to Psalm 22 now. And I want you to see this. So keep a finger in Hebrews 2. We'll turn back there in just a moment. But I want you to see this in, Hebrew, in uh, Psalm 22. And one of the things that we have to keep in mind is that when a New Testament writer quotes from the Old Testament, they have the whole passage or the whole context in mind. Uh, they don't. They don't. They didn't think the way we tend to think today, where we tend to quote a verse but we don't understand the context. Typically, um, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Can you tell me what said? Uh, before and after that, I'm like, well, I don't, you know, um, uh, Jeremiah 29 11. I have great plans for you, you know, plans not to harm you, and so forth and so on. Um, well, what's the context of the passage there? Say, well, I, I don't know. I just know that verse. It's on my hanging up on my bathroom wall or something like that. That that's actually not the norm. Uh, for the New Testament writers, really for the first century uh, Christians, uh, they would remember and know large sections of Scripture. So they would have the whole context in mind. Also, they didn't have the versification back then. They didn't split it up sentence by sentence, so they would understand the, the whole context. And that's what we have going on here when the writer of Hebrews quotes Psalm 22, 22. He's considering the whole psalm. So what is Psalm 22 about? Well, Psalm 22 contains quotes of Christ while he is on the cross. That is what Psalm 22 is about. It's Christ while he is on the cross. And the Spirit of Christ in David 
is predicting the sufferings of Christ in detail, even giving us more detail than some passages of the New Testament. And we see that when we consider even how Psalm 22 begins. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's an exact quote of Christ while he's on the cross. There's other quotes during the time of when Christ was on the cross. Verses 7 through 8. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. This is an exact quote of the Pharisees who mocked Christ while he was on the cross. It's Matthew 27.43, except this is quoted by David centuries earlier. Verse 15, my tongue sticks to, the, to my jaws, referring to Christ who, who's thirsty. Verse 16, they have pierced my hands and my feet. There's not much mental exercise that we need to utilize to figure out what that's referring to. Verse 18, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. This is clearly referring to Christ and the cross. And so this is giving not only Christ's statements that he said out loud, aloud, but also even his thought process. This psalm is Christ speaking, the Spirit of Christ in David, predicting his sufferings, as 1 Peter 1 says. And so that's what this whole psalm is about, and that's what, that's what is continuing here as we, we continue to read this psalm. Because in verses 19-21, through 21, Christ begins to petition the Father to rescue him. Again, we have to understand these statements here in the context of the psalm. Christ is still speaking. He's speaking throughout this whole psalm while He's on the cross. And that is why the author of Hebrews, without explaining himself, says that verse 22 of this psalm is Christ saying this. Because the whole psalm is Christ saying this while He's on the cross. Now Christ is Asking God to deliver him from his suffering. He is calling out to God the Father to save him, to rescue him. Now does God come down and rescue him off the cross? No, he doesn't. He continues to bleed and die. Does this mean then that the Father did not hear Christ's prayer or refuse to answer him? And the answer is, of course not. But how did God answer Christ? Well, God rescued Christ not from death, but out of death. He would raise him from the dead and deliver him out of the grip of the curse. The cross, the, his death, would not be the final word. He would rise again victoriously. And Christ knows this, and therefore, we see a shift beginning in verse 22. We see Christ go from speaking of His sufferings, calling out to God to assure hope. As He is calling out to God to deliver Him, while He is still on the cross, He demonstrates His confidence that God will deliver Him. And how is that confidence expressed? 
verse 22. I will, future tense, tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. So confident is Christ that the Father will deliver him out of death, that death will not be his end, that he will not see corruption in the grave, that Christ says, I, after I'm off the cross, after I die and breathe my last breath, I'm going to live forevermore. And my life is going to be consistent of me with my people in the midst of the congregation singing with them. Declaring your name to my people, which requires that he is going to be alive after his death. This means that Christ is confident that death will not have the final word. Christ is confident that he will rise again, that the grave will not hold him, and that he will not see corruption in the grave. But since Christ is saying this while on the cross, this means that this singing and this proclaiming is going to be post-cross. It occurs after the cross. He does not say, I have sung or proclaimed your name to the congregation. Rather, he says, I will. Future tense. A future time from the time of the cross. Sing and preach his name in the assembly and the gathered people of God. And that is why the author of Hebrews could say, long after the death of Christ. But this is a reality. This is a reality now. Christ is alive. Christ is with us in our midst doing these things. Now, how does Christ do this? Which is our final question. To answer that, to help us understand that, turn over to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. The book of Hebrews has one argument, and it's all connected. And I know it, it takes us years to get, you know, I'm not sure how long it's going uh, to take us to get through Hebrews. Uh, but it's not going to take a day. I will say that. And so it's all connected. And so I want you to see Hebrews 8, 1 and 2. Hebrews 8, 1 and 2 says, Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. So the author of Hebrews sums up what, is, what he has been saying for the past seven chapters, that Christ is our great high priest who is seated at the right hand of God. He's saying, this is the sum of what I've been saying. We have a high priest who's seated at God's right hand. And in verse 2, the author goes on to further explain what that means. And this is where he calls Christ, in the ESV's translation, a minister in the holy places. The word for minister is the Greek word leitergos, from which we get our English word liturgy. And liturgy refers to our order of service. And not particularly order like one, two, three, four, but our worship service. The Greek word liturgos refers to worship. 
So this Greek word referring to Christ as a minister or a liturgos means that he's the liturgist. To use our vernacular, he's the worship leader. That's what this is referring to. Christ is the worship leader. This is what a high priest was in the Old Testament. A high priest was responsible for leading the people of God in worship. Uh, the high priest would be responsible for the music, the singing, the reading and explaining of the scriptures. You see that in Nehemiah 8. Offering up the sacrifices, bringing the people's worship offerings into the presence of God. They were responsible for leading the worship. This is what a high priest does. The high priest was the liturgist in the Old Testament. And the point that the book of Hebrews is making is that we still have a liturgist. We have a better one. Not a Levite, but Jesus. He is that under the new covenant. And I want you to, to focus on what is said here in Hebrews 8.1. Particularly the tense of the verse, we have. It doesn't say we had, or we will have, but we have, present tense, a worship leader who is our Lord Jesus Christ. And where is he, the worship leader? Well, it says here in verse 2, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. In other words, it's not the physical, earthly one set up by man, but the true one set up by the Lord. And what is the true tabernacle or temple of the Lord that He has set up and not man? Well, of course, you can refer to the heavenly places here, but it's not the case that Christ is only leading worship in heaven. And that is because this verse says, We have. We who are still on earth, have Christ as the worship leader in the true tent that He set up. I've brought this up so many times, and you should know the answer. What is the temple in the New Testament? We are the temple. 1 Corinthians 3, 2 Corinthians 6 says, We, plural, collectively, are the temple of God. 1 Peter says, we are living stones. Are you a stone? Yes, you're a stone. Well, what kind of stone? A living stone. Well, why are you called a stone? Well, how was the temple built in, uh, in the Old Testament? It's built with stones. You see the tie? You're part of the true temple in which God dwells. We are that true temple. And this is where Christ is leading worship. The church that He's building. The tent that He has set up here on earth. And this is tied to Hebrews 2 regarding Christ both proclaiming the Word and singing God's praises. That is worship. He's leading that. In the true tent, we have a worship leader. And it's Christ. It's Christ. He is in the midst of the congregation, the true tabernacle, singing praises in and through us by His Spirit. 
praise and say we would never sing to God if it wasn't for His grace. He is the one who gifts, prompts, and uses the preacher to preach God's Word where His name is declared. As we see in Hebrews or in Ephesians 2.17 and Romans 15, hearing the true preaching of the Word is hearing the voice of Christ. And His very voice is heard when we sing His Word, especially the Psalms. Because as we see here in Psalm 22, it's a great example of the very words of Christ. And that's why we have an explicit New Testament command in Ephesians 5.19 to sing the Psalms. It's Christ singing. And Christ is the one who brings our spiritual offering of worship to God the Father, making them acceptable. This is why Hebrews two or Hebrews twelve twenty two. Turn over to Hebrews twelve twenty two through twenty four. Says what it says. Hebrews twelve twenty two through twenty four. Always pay attention to even the tense of the verbs. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. When I read that, Did you inadvertently read the word, you will come to Mount Zion? Because this sounds really future, doesn't it? We're talking about heavenly worship. We're talking about angels, saints saints who are made perfect. But that's not the tense of the verb, is it? It doesn't say you will come. You have come. You have come. The Holy Spirit doesn't mess up. The Holy Spirit doesn't make any errors. He chose you have come for a reason. You have already come to Mount Zion. Of course, there's a future aspect to it, of course. But this says we have come. Now, what is Mount Zion to which we have come? Well, Mount Zion throughout the Old Testament was used as a place where God dwells with His people. And if we just keep reading right here in Hebrews 12, we see what Mount Zion is. It's heavenly worship. It's joining saints of old who are now perfect. It's angels in festival gathering. It's worship in heaven. Think about that. We don't see it. We don't experience it. But the Word of God says you have come to this. We are joining with saints who have gone before us. Our praise, our worship is joined with heaven because Christ, our great high priest, just as the priest in the Old Testament, has, it brings our praise, our worship to God in heaven. Just as the Old Testament priest brought the offerings of God's people into the most holy place. And this is a great joy for Christ to do. He says in the next verse of Hebrews 2, Hebrews 2.13, Behold, I and the children whom you have given me. 
And it also says in verse 11, He's not ashamed of us. He's not ashamed to present us to God. He joyfully does it. This is a great comfort. Because we come, we come here messed up. We come here sinful. We come here uh, having been filled with all sorts of sin throughout the week. Even now, filled with sin, selfishness, pride, and lust. We've screwed up throughout the week. We have greatly struggled with the sin that so easily entangles us. We realize we are weaker than we actually are. We know that we are not worthy in and of ourselves to come into the presence of God. And that could tempt us to try to find some sort of worth in us. By which we say, well, I'm worthy because I'm not like this person. Or I'm worthy because I've done these things. To give us some sort of confidence to not be ashamed. But that's all been covered for us. That's been covered for us by the work of Christ. We are not worthy to come before His presence, but Christ is not ashamed of us. He is not ashamed to call us His brothers. He is not ashamed to present us to God the Father. And He is not ashamed to be in our midst with us. He is with us. We are joyfully welcomed by Him into His presence because He has cleansed us with His blood. Because He has covered us with His own perfect righteousness. Although we feel filthy, and dirty, and unclean, and unworthy, and indeed, in our sin we are. Yet because of the perfect work of Christ, because of His work alone, because of His merits, because of His name, because of His blood. We have all that we need to have not only confidence, but bold confidence to come before God the Father. We do not rely on our own righteousness, our own merits. Anything in us, or even the work that God's doing in us, we rely all on the work of Christ to stand before God holy and blameless, beyond a reproach. And that is why our worship, even here, as flawed and sinful as it is, is presented before God. And therefore joined with the saints and the angels in heaven now. So brothers and sisters, if Christ meets with us and is in our midst as we gather together in His name and is leading our worship and presenting us uh, to heaven itself by His Spirit. Where else would you rather be? What could possibly be more thrilling and exciting and more glorious on earth? Oh, indeed. According to the flesh, there's some, some more exciting things. According to sight, there's more exciting things. But when we understand by faith that we join the course in heaven, that angels right now are watching our worship? What could be more thrilling and exciting than that? That we are joining believers who have gone before us who are doing perfectly what we are doing here imperfectly. And that is our hope, is it not? Heaven? To be able to come into the presence of God 
forever and ever. And if Christ the King of kings and Lord of lords is here with us in our midst, then how should we approach worship? Well, we should do what Hebrews 12 goes on to say after it presents this picture. That we are to offer up to Him acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Let us act as if we have a great King in our midst who is leading our worship, which is brought about by His incarnation, by His work in His body. Let me end with these words from Charles Spurgeon in a sermon that he preached here on Hebrews 2.12. He says, It is so here now. Christ is praising God in this congregation. Behold then, in your midst, O church of God, Christ stands here to join in this worship, declaring the Father's name unto His brethren, and with us singing praises unto the Most High. Does, this, does not this bring Him very near to you? O oh, happy hour, if we could but see Him in His very flesh and blood among us, Yet we know that He is here, even if we cannot see Him. For He has said, Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Father in heaven, we are so grateful that You are here with us by Your Son, by Your Spirit. We are so grateful that Christ is with us, even though we don't see Him, even though we can't feel Him, even though one day our faith will become sight, but by faith we know this is true because Your Word says it is true. So may we honor and glorify You. May this not be a duty. May this be a joyful meeting with You. Give us eyes to see. Thank You for this wonder of the Incarnation that through the veil that is Christ's flesh, we have been reconciled to you. We enter the most holy place where Christ is with us in our midst. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You have been listening to a message from Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To receive more information about Trinity Bible Church or to support the ministry, go to tbcwyoming.com. That is tbcwyoming.com. Wyoming.com.